Chapter Nineteen. Tanner paused under the lamp before the gatehouse. Courage, all would be well. She'd get through. The lady Tanner. The gatehouse keeper hoisted up on his belly and leaned over the barrier. And where might you be going at this time of night without pass or escort? Turner moistened her lips, forced a coquettish smile. Oh, come, Hawk, you know how it is. And beneath her smile cursed her face for being so well known all over the citadel. Gar's property now she was, and sneaking out the moment his back was turned. Hawk shook his head. I can't let you out on the town whilst his highness is away fighting for king and country, lady. You'll have my head on a pole. Turner pouted prettily. Oh, tell him. Come on, Hawk. Here. She took from under her mantle a tiny blue harpile bag, and loosening the drawstring shook out a silver buckle set with bright white stones onto the counter. It's your talk, if you'll let me through. The gatekeeper looked at her from out of the heavy folds of his face. My lady, what a lucky man out there is worth this. He took up the buckle, held it to his vast middle, then at arm's length admiring the knot. Grimla. The knot around a man's soul, protecting it from the Dryak's grim hand. It was old, very old, and worth five hundred shames, if a rack. Folian had given it to her for dowry, for her husband one day. But if she didn't use it now, she'd not have one, at least not the one she wanted. Shaking his head, Hawk shoved the buckle back towards her. Sorry, Lady Tanner, but much as I'm tempted, it's more than my life's worth than to let you out. Now, you go back to your quarters. The town's not safe for a fellowella, and anyone who bids you go from here alone is not worth the effort. Hawk turned to the inner door, where messengers sat idling the time away. I'll have you an escort back to the Queen's Tower, lady. No, I'll make my own way back. Tanner took up the buckle and put it away. Then, pulling her hood about her face, she turned from the lighted gatehouse. This gate was her last chance. She'd not give in if it took her all night and the next. She must do what she had to do before he came back, and under cover of dark. For what reason could she give for wanting to go down into that place, other than the real one? And she was not about to reveal that. Under the cover of her outer mantle she stroked her belly. She'd hoped to steal through the servant's gate, a whole hour she'd spent watching that postern, 
the Scots going back and forth from the town taverns or their hovels to sleep. All searched, all with passes. Times had become uncertain indeed. She'd gone then to the barracks gate, standing for long watching the sentries, the endless patrols going to and from the city. Soldiers' gate, servants' gate, trade gate. What was the use of any of them without a pass? Besides, no matter how she dressed, she'd never get out unnoticed, not with her face, her famous, infinite face. That face flamed as she thought of the gossip she'd overheard at board, of how talk was doing, and what certain people were up to behind his back, and what he wouldn't do to them when he came home. Tongues were certainly bold, in Gar's absence. She'd sat miserably, unable to eat or drink. She hovered, pulling her mantle tight against the cold wind. She had to get out somehow without being seen. Re-entry would be easy, for that fool Hawk couldn't afford to sign her in one way. Two people came through, up the steep drawbridge ramp, past the sentries and under the portcullis, the king's third equerry and squire looking tired from a hard ride from the weald, and with a blast of horns and a loud clatter. A returning all-day hunting party delayed, they said, by storms beyond the hills. No one came from the citadel. Her feet grew numb. Maybe no one would pass through this night. Maybe she should try again tomorrow night. She hopped from one foot to the other, unable to decide. She hated to give in. She was on the point of stepping out onto the return path, when a path of young squires rode up on far back, singing and laughing loudly, all of them brimming with gort wine, all set to carve up the town. Seven of them, to be exact, on six stars. Ho, oh, hockey hock! The one riding behind his friend half slid, half fell to the ground, staggered out of sight around the corner in the gatehouse, waving his sword dangerously in the air. A thaw! Fetch us another thaw, quick, before we pop your wind bladder! Loud laughter. Hawk's voice raised in reply. Fetch it yourselves, sirs. That's not my job, you well know, nor my messenger's job, neither. You'll be sorry, Hoggy Hawk. Oh, get away with you. I told you before, none but them from the king's own tower commands me, and you'd be wise to keep clear of those streets down there, lest his majesty's patrols take you for spies and punctures your wine-bladders. What? Hockey. The squire's voice slurred slightly. The dryad take him for his impudence. Hoist him, fellows. More laughter. Good-humoured enough. Then sounds of scuffling. Tanner edged forward and peered around the door. The lot of them had dismounted, 
end were hauling Hock's fast bulk up over the top of the counter. Hock called out loudly, and through the back door burst four sleepy messenger lads who grabbed Hock's feet and began pulling the other way. Put me down, you fools, Hock shouted, and grab a hold of them instead. Within seconds, the gatehouse was a jumble of fists and feet, then steel, as the two sentries came running in from their posts beside the open gate, pikes raised. Seeing her chance, Tanner slipped across the lighted space and under the empty portcullis arch as one of the squires drew his sword and with a joyous whoop engaged the nearest royal sentry. She ran headlong down the dizzy ramp, skirts about her knees, expecting at any moment a challenge, a shouted summons, down at last to the darkness at the bottom, her heart beating rapidly, her throat blood raw. Only there did she stop to gain breath. She leaned against the wall, fighting the weakness in her knees. The rising nausea. What was she doing anyway? Playing double jeopardy at this time of night on half-heard kitchen gossip? If cutthroats and thieves didn't get her, the king's patrols were everywhere and she'd likely be hauled up before Sharrock as a spy. She moved off close by the wall keeping to the main road. There were few people about. Most folk were indoors by their fires, digesting their suppers, and the taverns hadn't yet disgorged their hordes. Once she stiffened against the wall at the sound of booted feet approaching, all marching in step. But they passed and died away somewhere over to her left without coming into view. It was some while before she went on. Carefully she counted the alleys on either side, until at a certain point she turned sharp right, following a narrow alley, all steps and cobbles, to twist a body's ankles until she came to a low arch. Under the arch was a door, shoulder-high. No more than a hole in the wall, really. She ran her hands carefully over the door. It was thick, rough, solid. No knocker, no bell. She made a tight fist and rapped with her knuckles, then called softly, Mother Ratchy. There came a rustle, then silence. She knocked again. Who's there? Gordon O'Meary of Tariff. Please, let me in. Another silence, then a laugh which almost set Tanner running back off down the alley to the street. The door opened, and in the darkness a claw shot out and pulled her through 
shutting the door behind them. Come in, come in, Gordner, Mary, and stop your row. Another laugh, dry, derisive, and bony fingers still tightly clamped about Turner's wrist pulled her along an uneven tiled passage into a windowless room lit only by red embers in a rough earth hearth. The low walls were crammed from floor to ceiling with shelves all awry. Shelves filled with jumbled bottles and pots and bags. The smoky, greasy rafters were also hung with dusty dried sticks and bunched pines that had long given up their last fragrant essences. Most of the floor space was filled with a wooden table littered with the remnants of several meals and surrounded by rickety chairs and a stool. In a far corner was a sagging bed, unmade and strewn with rags. In its centre, a piebald sheaf-wrap whined and gnawed its own haunch. The air was foul. A mixture of stale bodies long since gone, of bad breath and unemptied chamber pots and rotten food. Turner put her free hand to her mouth. Here, here, Gordner, Mary of Terry. The claw shook her. Don't you go messing up my parlour here. State your business. I... Tanner swallowed. I heard you were a squatter. The laugh became a screech. Is that what they said now? They wants their tongues a pulled for saying such a thing out loud about a body. You knows what they do to squatters? Without waiting for a reply, the woman left her, went to rake the embers. She was very small, not even reaching Tanner's shoulders, and thin, wiry under layers of heavy tattered skirts, all dark grey and brown and black. Wisps of grey hair struggled from under her doishan, shadowing her grimy face making empty sockets of her eyes. On second thought, the old woman reached down and threw a small wizened log onto the embers, and at once the hearth filled with choking black smoke. The bugard take you, she cried, and kicked it with her boot, starting a single sullen flame. Tanner collapsed unbidden onto the stool and laid her head on the table. A chair scraped the floor, then a claw patted her shoulder. There, girl, you look in sore need of old Mother Atchi. Let me guess, it's not a love potion that you're wanting. Another sharp cackle. Tanner raised her head. 
You guess right, old woman. I am with child. They say you have something to... To... It depends. How much have you got? No money. Only this. She reached into her bodice, drew out the buckle. It's a man's buckle, I know, she said, but it's worth a good few rats. The old woman snatched it, placed it in her palm, turned it this way and that, then testing it between her teeth. Hmm, on silver. Good, good, but not enough. Tanner stood in dismay. But they said, I heard. The old woman leaned over her and put her face close, wafting out a cloud of fetid breath. Well, you heard wrong, Missy. Tabith, indeed. In them clothes. You'll have to get up earlier in the day to fool me. From the citadel you are. Get a hunts for lot of you. In and out of this house of mine, like please, go home and find me something else. I'll keep this for you meanwhile. But Tanner held on to the table. You're all alike, you fine fellowellers. Well, know this, Gordon, merely of Tarith. Mother Ratchet's a woman of a word. If you don't go now, I'll send you packing, and you'll never find this door open no more. Tanner subsided again. She might have known. She reached into her bodice and drew out a second black bag. Here, she said, that's it. I have nothing else, nothing to buy my way back into the citadel. Opening the bag, she shook out onto the table a deep red stone. Garimony, they called it, or gort stone, after that wine's colour. Her spirits sank. How she wished she'd not given the buckle. Now she'd lose both treasures after all. Oh, the pain of it! It were as though she'd given Folian herself into those filthy hands. Mother Ratchie grabbed up the stone, exclaimed as it caught the fitful flame of the fire. Red patches of light like bright blood whirled around the grimy walls, splashed the old woman's face and hands, and Tanner's own. She slid her hands under the table. The squadra put the stone back into its pouch and slipped it into a pocket somewhere in her skirt. She patted Tanner's shoulder. There, there, my pretty. You just sit and take your rest. Mother Ratchie will see you right. From one of the shelves, she took down several bottles, these not dusty at all, and a cracked bowl, and brought them over to the table. 
Tenna watched in spite of herself as the old woman shook and measured and pinched the powders into the bowl and ground them all up together into a mixture which she then emptied into a glass vial and set down on the table. Then she went to the cot, smacked it with her hand, sending the frat leaping from the room. There now, she said, you just come and lie down while I draw you a cup of water to take it in. Turner looked to the sagging cot in horror. No, no, she said. I must take it home. My mother will miss me if I stay out too long. The old woman laughed harshly. And you wish, fine lady, but don't blame me if aught goes awry. Come to think, she muttered, and emptied some of the powder back out onto the table before stoppering the file and handing it over. Take it in a cupful of hot water, she said, or better, a handle of the strongest wine you can lay hand to, and take it in bed. She leaned her head down again, took Tanner's chin in her claw, and tilted her face. But as I said, if anything goes wrong, don't tell me. She straightened and walked to the door. Of course, if all goes well and you need me again, just knock on my door. She patted her skirt pocket. And now, for goodwill, I'll send Dagamel with you to see you on your way. Dagamel! She tipped her head up and screeched up into the rafters. Dagamel! Heavy steps clumped slowly down an overhead stair. Then the door opened. Dagamel was as tall as Mother Rat she was tiny, and hairy as Junu. He grinned at Tanner with huge brown rotten teeth. Dagamel, see this pretty on her way, Mother Rat, she shouted. Dagamel can be stubborn, she explained to Tanner in her normal voice. But he's a proper boy for all that. She pushed them towards the door, down the passage and out into the alley. Outside it had grown colder, and a stale mist rose from the cobbles. Tanner set off back up the narrow way, conscious of Dagomel, treading heavily on her heels. She picked up her pace nervously. It was so quiet and dark. She could hear his breathing. Beyond the alley, the night air was alive now with noise, the taverns having spilled out their drunken contents onto the streets. Turner had become so uneasy about Dagomel by this time that she almost welcomed the noisy, brawling crowds singing and tottering from side to side of the road arms linked to hold one another up. 
but just as she was about to leave the dock of the alley for the light of the road, Dagonel seized her arm and pulled her back. She struggled, tried to free herself from his grip, but he held her only more tightly, dragging her further back up the alley. She opened her mouth to shout, but with a curious grunt, he put a great fist over it, pressing her into the wall. She drew back her foot to kick, and as she did so, there was a sudden shout, and boots tramped past the alley entrance. They froze, Dagomar with his hand over her mouth, she with her foot poised in the air. There was a second shout, a stifled scream, the sound of running feet. Then, in the sudden silence, the thud of boots died away. Dagomel removed his hairy hand and nodded her on. Shaking, she walked slowly back and into the street. In the centre of the deserted way, a body lay unmoving. Dagomel turned it over with his foot. Tanner took in a sharp breath. The face was gone. She looked around wildly, saw blood everywhere. Dagomel straightened up, flapped his great hands at her, waving her away. Such a huge man, this rough, ungainly son of an ugly squatter. How she'd misjudged him, thinking rape, even as he'd saved her life. Impulsively, she reached up and lightly kissed his wire-haired cheek. Thank you, Dagomel, and goodbye, she whispered, and turned away. She'd not gone far when Dagomel reappeared beside her and stayed there until she'd reached the safety of the bridge. By Dryack's luck, the drawbridge was down. If the sentries were surprised to see her, they gave no sign. But one of them did escort her into the gatehouse to confront Hock. Hock was sitting behind the counter on a broad stool, talking with a large grey woman whose doishan was pushed back off her face. At Tanner's entrance, he stopped in mid-sentence, got up puffing and wheezing, and eyed her sternly from under his heavy brow. He should denounce her, she knew, and order her detained and taken to the king for judgment in the morning. The lady Tanner says she's lost her pass-keeper, the sentry said. Hock's jowls waggled. That's so, Lady Tanner? Tanner nodded. Hock nodded the sentry back outside. I'll take care of it. When the sentry was gone, she leaned over the counter. 
So you had your way after all, Missy. Well, and now you'll at least tell me aware of you've been. How generous of him. Tanner hoped he wouldn't ask for the buckle. But she couldn't tell him. He'd have to drag it out of her. Here, Hawk. The old woman stood up. The fellowella looks in need of a seat, not a scolding. Here, my dear, do you come around here and sit you down a bit until you have your breath? Tanner stared, surprised by the authority in the woman's voice. A deep voice, gruff as Hawk's own, yet gentle and not at all coarse. The woman met her halfway around the counter, took her arm and firmly sat her on the chair she'd vacated. Hook, cloth. To Tanner's amazement, Hook fetched it himself from the back room. He's a kind man, my lady Tanner, when he uses his noggin, the woman said softly. Now, Put your head down on your lap. That's it. Tanner did so, and at once felt a firm square hand rubbing firm circles on her back. Hawk's heavy tread, and he was back with the cloth. The woman spoke gently in her ear. Now, I know you don't feel like this cloth at this moment, but drink it down. You'll feel better for it. Tanner raised her head, took with both hands the scalding cup that Hawk had wrapped in a blue and white kerchief. Her gut heaved at the first two or three sips, but as the hot fluid scored its way down her throat and chest, its fluttering slowed, then stopped. No one spoke until she'd drained it all. The old woman took the cup, handed it to Hock, and stood up. Hock, I'll see the Lady Tanner back to her quarters for you. As for me, I'll come again tomorrow. She gave Tanner a hand up and put an arm about her shoulders, steadying her. Out in the darkness of the path leading to the main pile, she paused. Here, stop a minute, and take in a deep breath or two, if you can stand the cold. The old woman herself had on no outer mantle, only her doishan, which lifted in the chill wind. You're very kind, Tanner said. I don't know you. No more you should, the old woman said, for I keep to myself much these days. I'm Hobbly, that raised up that young brook of a talk, and the rest of Sherlock's brood. For my pains I've got a pension, and a hole in the wall, and since I've no one out there after all these years, 
and pleased enough to bide beneath the king's hand. Tanner glanced to her face sharply at a note in her voice, but the old face seemed genuine enough. You're trembling, Hubbley said. Let's move on. They went on in silence until they reached the outer ring of buildings adjoining the great arch which led to the inner courtyard and the royal towers. The old woman stopped and pointed to a squat stone building three stories high to the left, part way along the wall. There's my dwelling place, she said. Two flights up and then off one to the little turret you see on top. The widow's peak, as they call it, which is what I've been for longer than I can recall. They walked on. At the foot of the Queen's Tower she stopped again. Lady Tanner, I'll leave you here. Take your time up the stairs. Tanner was aware of the eyes scrutinising her face. If you go ahead and do what you mean to do, Harbally went on in a low voice, have a care. You'd have best had it done out there while you could. Our glorious elevation won't like it, you know, and you'll have no help from her. If you need me, she nodded back towards the great arch, you know where to find me. If you can't make it, send for me. I'll come. Before Tanner could speak a word, Harbally was walking rapidly back towards the outer arch. She leaned against the doorway. You'd have best had it done out there while you could. Harbally knew. How? Oh. Did it show so plainly? She set her feet to the stair, shaking away the idea. No, nobody had yet guessed, or they would have said. What a remarkable old woman she was. Tanner smiled. She'd have to be, if she was Talk's old nurse. She climbed on. As silently as she could, she stripped her bed, lined it with sheets she'd hidden away those past two weeks. Then, putting on her oldest gown, she filled her bedside goblet with water and shook the precious powder in. She sat for long on the side of the bed, the goblet in her hand, staring down at the dark contents. Boards creaked. Someone, probably Magla, snored softly a few doors down. When it started, she told herself, she'd have to keep silent, whatever she felt. She took a kerchief from her mantle pocket to bite on. What of the little life within her body? Would it too feel the pain? Would it 
too cries silently in the darkness of her womb. Her hand tightened on the goblet. Enough. She'd been around all that too many times. She'd made her choice. It had no right to be there. Her first child must be talks, or she'd have none. She swung her feet up on the bed, raised the goblet, and tipped the contents down her throat. The taste was bitter, metallic, with a faint after-sting. She lay back, waiting. A cry awoke her. She sat up in the dark, and realised then that the cry had come from her. Her belly was burning. A rolling pain ripped through her body, wrenching from her another moan, which she quickly bit off. Through the next wave she held herself rigid. Had anyone hurt? She sat there in the chilly dark, listening. Another wave of pain swelling, then tightening to a point. She curled up, her fist to her mouth. Her breathing quickened. She fought to slow it, even with the next wave. She was going to be sick, loudly sick, but she couldn't be, not there. She swung her feet to the floor, groped for her mantle, then pushing through her door, made for the stairs. Halfway across the deserted compound, a sentry stopped, saluted. She took two paces past him, staggered, went down. The sentry hovered somewhere above her. Lady Turner? She looked up at his tall shape against the starlit sky. Harbourly? Harbourly, lady? You know her? Turner groaned the words out. Out of the dark, the old woman's voice came. I'm here. Pick her up, young man, gently, if you value your splendid outfit, and follow me. Harbourly. Tanner was vaguely aware of being lifted, of the old woman's face hovering somewhere upside down against the wheeling stars, then in a flash of pain the face and the stars winked out.